And when we learn that a major bank has serious problems, we will hold accountable those responsible, force the necessary adjustments, provide the support to clean up their balance sheets, and assure the co continuity of a strong, viable institution that can serve our people and our economy. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. This is Wednesday, February 25th. Adam, we're moving fast. Give us an indicator. The indicator is seven. Okay. Seven things that I had to do in the last 45 <laughs> minutes, and it's too many. We're in the middle of finishing our huge This American Life yep. hour yep. for this week, which is another awesome, I hope, Planet Money, This American Life hour. Um, then we get offered an interview with Tim Geithner, which is coming to you right now, Treasury Secretary. Can't say no to that. So I had to run over here and do that. I had to turn it around for all things considered, had to do the blog, have to get something ready for morning edition. It's a little overwhelming, yeah, I've got to say. You've been popping in and out of studios like a whack-a-mole all day. It's really true. It is exhausting. Um, so, but, so today's show is entirely devoted to um, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, um, Tim Geithner. And I actually asked Katia Dunn to join us. Hey, Katia. Hey. Katia um, is a producer with NPR, and um, I'm in New York. Treasury Secretary is in D.C. And so Katia ran over to uh, Treasury headquarters right next to the White House to, well, basically stick a mic in his face, right? <laughs> right, that's right. It's my and, job. And um, th there was something really fascinating about this interview. The interview itself might, well, let's just be honest, there might be parts of it that are a bit dry. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my feeling was this was like a dance. It was, and, and this is a dance reporters have all the time with public officials. I, so, so, so I want to get him to say something newsworthy because that's, I don't know. That's good for NPR. That's good. And they're actually, we had NPR's news team. We had All Things Considered. We had Morning Edition standing by in case he said something newsworthy. Um, he wants to stay on message. He wants to stay really on message because he knows that the slightest misstep, the slightest verbal misstep, he will he could collapse the stock market. I mean, last week, Senator Chris Dodd just mentioned that maybe nationalization is a good idea. The stock market collapsed. Tim Geithner is much more powerful than Chris Dodd when it comes to this stuff. So, so Katie, you, you told me after the interview that there was a bit of a dance on their end, too. <laughs> right. So, you know, Mr. Geithner himself was very calm, but he had this press aide who was kind of madly running around the room for the whole interview. And as he started to talk, she would scribble down these talking points and then run over and kind of put them in his face. And, you know, there were suggestions for him, things for him to say that kept him on point. So let me just – can we picture it? Because since I only talked to him on the phone, it's it's in his office? Right. We're in his office. You know, it's, it's a very lovely office, lots of, you know, couches and chairs and things. And um, – and, you know, he's he's on the phone with you, and then this assistant... Does he have talking points in front of him? Does he have... No, no. He, you know, like I said, he was very calm and collective, and, you know, he seemed very together. Um, but then, you know, the, his his aide was, was also listening in on the phone um, across from him, sitting across from him. So... And you're standing next to him with a mic in his face. Oh, no, I was actually sitting next to him in, an, in another chair, but yes, with a mic in his face. So... Um, but then so she she was kind of reaching like you know more and more frantic levels of of craziness and then when things when she seemed really tense she would put the phone down and do the you know the scribbling 
of the talking points and then run over and, you know, flash them in front of him. I wonder if we'll hear any of the scribbling when we roll this tape. In well, just a actually, minute. you know, I was just I was just listening through to it again, and there's one uh, question where you actually kind can kind of hear her whispering in the background. If you if you play the interview, maybe uh, you know, ex- listeners who are paying extra attention will be able to hear. Thank you so much for yeah. uh, for for doing all this for us and for giving us a little hint of how cautious they are. Over yeah, the well, department. it was really fun. <laughs> let's let's roll the tape. Can you help us understand with these stress tests that are starting today, what is it that you want to know that, that you don't know already? Uh, and these are, you can think of these like a, like a health assessment. You know, anybody running a major institution and any supervisor systematically does things they call stress tests. It's sort of an integral part of what, uh, what these banks do and what supervisors do. But we, what we want to do is to bring a more realistic, a more conservative, more consistent, forward-looking assessment uh, so that we are confident uh, that these institutions are going to have the resources necessary to, to withstand a more challenging economic environment. And to do that, uh, we're going to make sure that they have support from the government in terms of capital from the government uh, where that is necessary. And this will allow us to, uh, you know, target our resources more selectively to where they're most needed. And it'll help lift this cloud of uncertainty that's now weighing on the financial system. Can can you give us a picture of what you know now? And I know you can't speak to any individual bank, but, you know, when when we look at the publicly released documents about banks, it's very hard for, for anyone in the market or anyone in the press to have a sense of, which of their assets might be toxic, which might be overvalued. Do you know all that stuff? Like, how, how much do you know about the big banks in America? Well, I think, you know, you're basically right that, that that source of concern and uncertainty across the market is part of what's weighing on the system. Now, the source of the uncertainty is partly just concern about how deep the recession may be and what ultimate losses may be in that context. And that's something that uh, the president's broad agenda is going to confront directly because by providing really very substantial support to help create jobs and support private investments through this recovery and reinvestment plan, um, you're going to see you're going to we're going to make the recession shallower and shorter than it would otherwise have been, and that will help with this uncertainty. But part of the uncertainty is, as you said, just because it's difficult for people to understand how to read. Uh, what um, the relative financial strength of these institutions. And so our approach is designed to try to get ahead of this, bring a more forward-looking approach, and therefore lift that cloud of uncertainty over these institutions. And it's going to require not just, again, this you know, a carefully designed, more forward-looking assessment about the relative health of banks, but also that the government provide support in the form of capital so that they are able to uh, withstand the more challenging environment that we may face going forward. Now, I, I would think of a fair number of citizens could say, wait a second, where, depending on when you start the clock, you know, two years or one year or six months into this horrible crisis, and, and you're telling me the government doesn't have a strong, forward-looking, hard-headed assessment of the health of the banking system? Well, I think that, um, again, we want to make sure that it's done more consistently and more realistically across banks and across the supervisors. Uh, so this is a part of what banks do and what supervisors do. But frankly, it needs to be done more carefully and with a more forward-looking, realistic approach. Do you know or does your staff know whether or not some banks are, are likely to be insolvent at, at current market rates? Is that something you know now or you'll only know once the stress test is completed? Um, 
Adam, you know, our system is a remarkably diverse system. You know, we have 9,000 banks. A lot of those institutions were not part of the problem. They're going to be a really important source of the solution. You see them expanding um, as other parts of the system scale down a little bit. And um, there is a lot of strength in our financial system. And institutions today, as you look at them, hold quite high levels of capital relative to what they would have held in previous, previous downturns. But again, what the market's doing is looking forward. And what we want to do is make sure that policy looks forward too and provides reassurance to the markets that there are going to be enough capital and resources so that these institutions can play their critical role in the system going forward. I see. So, I mean, it does seem like... You should think about... And one way to think about this is this is a way to provide an additional cushion, an additional buffer of capital, greater form of insurance against the possibility that we face a more challenging environment going forward because that cloud of uncertainty now is now weighing in the system. And the best approach we know is to try to get ahead of that, try to resolve that. Is it possible that there are large banks in the U.S. that are effectively insolvent. That's what we keep hearing from economists and market folks. Is, is that possible? Well, Adam, l- let, me t- let me try it uh, this way again. If you look at our system today, uh, our system has quite high levels of capital relative to what we've had going into a recession like this in the past. But again, what we want to make sure is that if you look forward that the market understands that there will be support in terms of capital from the government where that's necessary so that there is enough strength to support credit. Um, so so what, what, what would be the, what's sort of the, what you hope the stress test, I mean, sort of the best case scenario, and then if you could paint sort of the worst case scenario, what, what would be bad news from the stress test? Well, uh, I think the, the stress test will help will help us restore confidence, reassure the system that, again, where there needs to be some temporary support from the government that is there and provided, and it'll help make it clear that where that support is not necessary, these institutions are strong enough to go forward on their own. So you should think about this as a, you know, as a form of contingent support to provide an additional level of comfort so that all those institutions can do their critical thing to get through a, provide credit in a, in a more challenging environment. And, you know, again, this is overwhelmingly... Uh, about trying to make sure there's enough credit to support recovery in the United States, and banks play a critical role—not not the only role. So we, you know, we also have a you know a very aggressive program of lending designed to try to get the credit markets going again, so that small business lending, consumer lending, automobile financing also gets going again. And you know, this is not a—it's a not—it's not a pass-fail test. It's designed to try to make sure that there's the additional buffer of confidence of capital. You can think of it as a form of insurance. So, again, these, these um, institutions are able to play their role. Without that, there's a risk that, you know, they hoard capital, hoard liquidity. They try to husband their resources, and they're not taking enough risk. We want to make sure that they're, they're taking the kind of risk they need to make, responsible take, responsible risk to try to make sure that recovery comes more quickly than it otherwise would. Sure. I want to switch a little to, to these toxic assets. I mean, we, we at NPR and journalists around the world, and certainly people um, in the regulatory world have, have looked at a lot of these toxic assets, you know, some of the more, these CDOs and CDO squares. And, and I'm just curious, do you, have you spent time or, or has, does your staff have a sense? I mean, we're talking about the overall bank's capital structure and the overall bank's ability to withstand shocks. But do you, have you spent time looking at these toxic assets? Do you have staff sort of tracking down 
the mortgages that underlie some of them, some of the other more exotic asset-backed securities that underlie some of them? Well, the supervisors uh, of the country, you know, there's, we have a complex network of bank supervisors, uh, banking authorities, financial agencies. They have examiners in these institutions examining the financial strength of these firms. And as part of that, of course, one, one of the central jobs they have is to look at uh, the risk in a whole range of different loans and assets these guys have, not just those related to real estate that you're referring to, but everything else true. And, they, and that job is to try to make sure that, again, people are making appropriate judgments about what the risk in those assets are. I, I want to do something with you that I'm actually kind of terrified to do because you're the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, but this is what we are doing is an hour-long documentary trying to explain to our listeners how a bank works right. and, and so that they can understand the challenges that you face. And we've created a stylized bank to help them understand. It's a bank, we're frankly calling it Adams Bank, my bank, with $10 in capital, $90 in liabilities, um, depositors and bonds and whatever, and then $100 in assets. And we're, in our stylized example, calling it a dollhouse. It, this bank owns one dollhouse. And, 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 I, and we're trying to help our audience, under because I think many people in America don't really understand how banks work fundamentally. They don't understand capital, assets, liabilities. And, and what we're explaining to them is, if that dollhouse, that, that $100 asset, the market is now valuing it at, say, $50, then, then if the bank had to sell that asset today, they could not cover their liabilities, and they'd certainly lose all of their capital. And so what we're telling them is that you um, have a few options. One option is you can say the market is wrong, and we're going to buy that dollhouse for $90 or $95, because our view is the market, it, 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 there's a liquidity problem, or there's other problems that have created an artificial price. The other option is you can take the, the bank over. The other option is you could guarantee the liabilities. Um, and then the third thing is, is is the very interesting idea that you've proposed, which is to basically help private investors buy the dollhouse. Am I nailing kind of that? Those are the options that you face? I think you did that very well. But let me start where you began a little bit about um, the basic challenge in this stuff. If somebody asked you, what's your home worth today? Your answer to that question would be dependent on whether you had to sell it today or you're planning to sell it in three years when you change jobs, or you're planning to sell it in 10 years when your kids are going to go to college. And, and uh, it would depend a little bit on whether you could get, that somebody who was going to buy it could get financing. So that basic challenge of trying to figure out what your home is worth or what any asset is worth, it depends a lot on how long you're going to hold it, and it depends a lot on whether there's going to be financing available to people out there who might buy it. And in the absence of financing... If you had to sell it today, it would be worth a fraction of its basic value. Now, what's happening in our market today is that we have uh, just a broad shortage of financing available. And what the government needs to do in that context, and what we're doing, we're going to do, is to try to make sure that the government and the central bank together can provide the financing to help get those markets working. And that will make it more likely that these assets are worth and have the value that is their basic inherent economic value uh, rather than a artificially depressed value that reflects the absence of uh, financing and credit. So in, in my stylized example, if I can see if I can paraphrase you, you're saying 
the market thinks that house is worth $50, not because the house isn't worth that much, but because people aren't buying dollhouses because they can't get the financing. We feel confident that six months, a year, two years from now, that house will be closer to its par value, closer to 100 So it makes no sense for us to force that bank to collapse under the weight of, of the deficit. Is, is very, that, well, very well said. Yeah. Um, now, if you were running, you know, Tim Geithner Hedge Fund, um, you, you would be approaching just, just all... Just for the record, I've never run a hedge fund. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, you'd be approaching this differently. I mean, I think an, another area I want to get you to talk to is, I, I don't have to tell you, there's an awful lot of people in Congress, an awful lot of people out there in the world who think... I'll just put it frankly that you've turned you and, and and others have turned America into a bunch of suckers that you know we're we're not getting the best deal that we could, um, and that if you were running a hedge fund, you'd call that bank and say, "Forget fifty bucks, I'll give you thirty bucks for the dollhouse. You're in trouble. I'm not. You know, I want to see a lot of upside potential." Well, um, Adam, let me try it this way: what our obligation is, and the obligation of your government is is to try to get this financial system fixed as quickly as possible so that credit is flowing again. And to do that, the government has to take risks that the private market cannot take at this time. And that is a necessary thing to do, because if we don't do that, then we're going to see much more damage to businesses and families across the country. And the crisis will be more protracted. It will be deeper. The recession will be longer. And you'll have, again, much more damage, not just to the productive capacity of your economy, but you'll see larger future deficits for a country. And it'll be much harder and more expensive to fix. So in a crisis like this, governments have to act because the market can't solve it on their own. If the market was able to solve this, then we wouldn't be in this position. But these things, uh, you know, they if you decide you're going to try to let them burn themselves out or... or, or have the market solve on their own, they will necessarily be deeper, more long-lasting, much more damaging to the economy, and ultimately cost the taxpayer much more money. I, I talk a lot to Simon Johnson, your former colleague at the IMF. Um, we actually didn't overlap together, but he, it's true. He did, he did come to the work at the IMF long after I did. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you didn't overlap. But, but you know, and, and I've talk, I talk to a lot of people at the IMF because what's very interesting is, as you know, obviously, they've dealt with tons of banking crises. And, and what the kind of as far as I can tell, the IMF technocrat response is, this is actually not that complicated. It's pretty straightforward, and it's what we've told many, many countries to do. You need a clear, transparent accounting of the health today of the banks. Which is what our health assessment is designed to do. So we are doing that with the stress test. And you'll probably need to shut down a fair number of banks. To, I hate to use the N-word. Well, a lot of people don't use the nationalized word. They say you need to you know, have have a, a, a supervisory period where you, you know, where you basically take the, the government backstops the assets and sells them off. Are, are we following that kind of IMF technocratic approach? Well, uh, Adam, what we're doing is um, following what I think are the basic lessons of history of governments in financial crises, which is that if you underestimate the problem, if you do too little too late, if you don't move aggressively enough, if you're not open and honest about trying to assess the true cost of this, uh, then you will face a deeper, long-lasting crisis. And our judgment is that the necessary response is to try to bring more confidence, more transparency 
to the strength of the system, to try to make sure that we make capital available where it is necessary to help get credit flowing again, and to try to provide the kind of direct support that is necessary to get the credit markets flowing again. Because I think, as you know, in our system, our system relies not just on banks, but you know, 40 percent of loans in a typical uh, in a sort of typical period come from the securitization markets and student lending, small business lending, automobile financing, commercial real estate financing, large parts of the mortgage market depend on those markets. So our approach is designed to move on all those fronts to do so quickly on a substantial scale. And I think that approach is the necessary approach, and it reflects, again, the very painful lessons we've seen in other countries where they took the different approach, which is to kind of stretch it out delay the pain, hope it'll be less expensive, less costly over time, and uh, uh, to try to do it with more gradualism and more tentative. And I I think that's the wrong approach, and uh, we're not going to take that risk. I don't have to tell you. There are people screaming that you, that, 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 there is a more radical approach, and you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you have turned off CNBC many months ago and don't watch all the financial blather out there. But 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 you do know that there there is a huge number of people who think that 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 the U.S. government is is propping up insolvent institutions, protecting shareholders and bondholders from from suffering the loss and putting the taxpayer in the first loss position. Adam, we're not going to do that, and that's not our strategy. You know, we are. We are going to make sure that we leave the system stronger, not weaker, that where we do exceptional things, we do so with conditions that are going to make the institutions stronger, with conditions that provide for an appropriate level of accountability, and on terms that are make sure that private capital can come and replace public capital as quickly as possible. We're going to be very careful that our approach meets that basic test of principles. Uh, because it's not just necessary for confidence that we're using taxpayers' money wisely, but it's the best way to make sure that we fix the system more quickly. But at the end of the day, isn't there basically three buckets of money? There's shareholders, debt holders, and taxpayers. And you've basically got to pour the money out of one of those buckets. You've got to pick. And and it seems like we're picking the taxpayer. You mean, no, I don't think that's right. What, uh, what we're trying to do is to make sure that we solve the crisis at least cost to the taxpayer with the best gain in terms of getting credit flowing again and the system stronger for the future. That's the basic trade-off we're trying to balance, and everything we do is designed, again, to make sure that we're solving this as quickly as possible with least cost to the taxpayer. And that's why the conditions are so important, and that's why we differentiate carefully across institutions. That's why we use the money selectively and then we put it in ways where it's going to have the biggest effect and get a credit flowing again. You, you talk about getting confidence and, and, and doing this process, this stress test process, to, to get the confidence. How do, you, how, how do you rate yourself right now, both you personally and just the administration's efforts? Um, where are you on, on getting the confidence of markets in our banking system? Well, you know, Adam, again, we're, we're making the necessary judgment that the only way to strengthen the system is to put the system through a process where we bring a more realistic, transparent assessment of relative strength of institutions with a clear commitment of support from the government that these institutions will have the resources necessary to play their critical role in the system. That's the judgment we're making. And uh, that 
process is necessary to try to get ahead of this. If we don't do that, the risk is that we're going to keep chasing this, we'll be behind it, and we'll leave a bigger cloud of uncertainty over the markets for a longer period of time. So, so when you say a clear message that we are behind the banks, I mean, what, what I'm hearing is the, the U.S. government will, will guarantee the debt of, all, of the U.S. banking system. Is, is, am I say, way overstating that? Well, you should view it as I said. And, you, and if you looked at the, you know, we issued a very powerful statement by the Secretary of the Treasury, the Chairman of the Fed, the Chairman of the FDIC, Right. On, on Monday. On Monday, right. And the president has said this consistently. And it's, it's really important for people to understand, which is, again, uh, to get the credit necessary for recovery to be firmly established, we need to make sure that we strengthen the system and that these institutions have the ability to provide this critical function. I mean, you know, credit is the lifeblood of the economy. Economies don't work without it. And the necessary path to recovery is to make sure that there is enough confidence in these institutions and they have the resources and uh, to play that critical role. Right. We need credit intermediation, we obviously. Um, and uh, Okay. Can I just... Okay. Uh, and do one more thing? Yeah, just one more very quickly. Um, can you just... And... and I, I, this is the question that, 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 well, can you just lay out why is nationalization, why, why do we keep hearing that is not an option, that is not where we're going? Is it a practical problem? Can we leave the politics aside? What are the practical challenges? Why is that a hard option? It's, um, it's not the right strategy for the country for basic practical reasons that our system will be stronger if we, it remains in private hands with support from the government to make sure those institutions can play their critical role going forward. And, of course, where we have to do, where we have to provide meaningful levels of support, we're going to do that with conditions to make sure that support helps benefit the flow of credit. Again, comes with conditions to make sure the institutions are stronger, not weaker as a result of it, and that it comes with appropriate accountability. And, again, a really important thing is, again, that we do so in ways that improve the odds that private capital comes in and replaces public capital as soon as possible. And that's a basic pragmatic judgment about what's going to be most effective in resolving the crisis at least ultimate cost to the taxpayer but and, any- to the economy, and to the economy as a whole. And, if, um, and you know, I understand that there are proponents of the alternative approach, but I am confident that that broad strategy would be would cause more damage to the economy and the financial system. The nationalization strategy. That broad strategy would people mean different things by it, but what many people mean would be more damaging to the process, to the cause of getting the financial system working again more quickly and supporting the kind of flow of credit necessary for recovery. And and again, in a way that minimizes ultimate costs and risks to the taxpayer. That's the central imperative we face. But anything short of you saying Sorry, Adam. Good questions, though. Okay. Thank Thank you you. so much, Secretary. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. So, Adam, out in the newsroom, everybody was listening to it. People had it on their speakers. People had it on their headphones. And when we all came up for air... I'm sorry? Poor people. Poor people. Yeah, we listened to everything. And when we all came up for air afterward, the first thing that everybody said was that Geithner kept saying nationalizing the banks was a bad idea. But he never said nationalization. He wouldn't say the word. Um, as you heard in my last question to him, he, I, I, I kept asking him about nationalization, and he would say that strategy, the other strategy. He won't even say 
the word. And I got to say, on the one hand, as a reporter, it's frustrating. I just want a clear, open conversation about the issues. And really, that's what I want. On the other hand, I do. I mean, it's just true. If Tim Geithner in any way could be misconstrued to say we want nationalization on national public radio, you know, we, we would see a collapse of the stock market tomorrow, the likes of which we've never seen. All right. That's it from us today. We welcome your responses to the Geithner interview on the blog. We're at npr.org slash money. And I do want to say thank you so much to the people who sent us questions for Geithner by Twitter. They were great questions. We just had so little time and had so much to cover. We didn't get to them this time, but hopefully next time. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. Feet beneath my feet, the cold has come, falls through the molten veins, cooling all the blood to slush, congeals around again. Oh.